Welcome to Red State Talk Radio. You're listening to Tori Says for the next hour. I'll be your host, Tori. We'll be discussing news, foreign and domestic, unfiltered news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Merry Christmas, everyone. Today is December 25th, 2019, and we are a breath away from 2020. Another decade gone. That sounds really long, doesn't it? Another decade gone, and we are entering into 2020. I wonder how the people in 1920 felt, right? 18, 20, 17, 20, when the year was approaching. I mean, did they even tackle the years back then? Did they say it was like March 25th, 1719, just saying? Um, it's pretty interesting to kind of take a look back and see, has anything really changed since then? So December 25th is usually about kids, love, family, but let's not forget it's the birth of Christ is what is being celebrated. Birth of the Savior, the ultimate sacrifice from our creator to bring himself, part of himself, his son on earth, which is done through each and every one of us in a sense because we are his children as well. So today's show I wanted to dedicate to children. The amazing thing about children that makes them targets, not only for nefarious activities or disgusting, evil activities, but the way they are being used and manipulated. You know, I was once told that that little dimple we have at the top of our lip, you know, that little groove, is right before your soul enters that an angel kind of puts a shh, don't say anything, you know, that little dimple. Imagine if your soul could actually speak uh, and you'll say, but we do. And yes, children do. Children are so incredible because they rapidly grow within their first two decades to become fully developed. Remember, the minute we we are born, the clock starts to the day that we die, which is very morbid, right? Kind of makes it like, what's the point? I'm going to die anyway. Why am I here? Which makes it all more interesting to think, no matter what, I guess there's got to be a purpose or else it doesn't make sense. And what is that purpose? Let's focus on the children for today, right after we hear an amazing Christmas song, which is very important to listen to. I actually love the song and the lyrics, and I hope you enjoy it while we get ready to see how we're going to roll this one out after a brief, you know, news update on what's going on. And then we're going to head right into 
Now, Christmas does tie into this very, very strongly because children are being targeted. And we're going to take a different path. While many of you have heard me talk about how children are being used for nefarious, carnal, disgusting activities, trafficked, and that they're the most expensive commodity, the most profitable commodity any evil person may have. I hope this spins a different light so you can understand just where things are going. Yourself 
you know, can you really have Christmas music without Michael Bublé? I could, you know, in the past, if you would have asked me, I would have said, well, you know, you can't do it without Dean Martin. You can't do it without Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra. I guess we have to add him to the list. Um, Cause he's, he's pretty much put some really good Christmas albums together. We have to all agree. Right. Um, so where uh, let's talk about the news today. Let's just talk about what's going on today before we delve into the most important part. I haven't talked about this because it's a very, um, I don't want to say touchy subject, but it's something that people aren't ready to fathom. And that would include myself, my earthly self, right? To think, well, yeah, so computers are not working with me today. Things are just going over my head. So um, what we need to talk about is children, youth. <clears throat> this is going to be something that you, uh, it's going to be a point of view that I don't think a lot of people have taken in as a whole. This is why this is going to be a very important show. Now, uh, I'm going to start with just the news updates. Um, we're going to talk about this whole Russia probe, this whole uh, impeachment sham. We're going to talk about Elizabeth Warren getting endorsed by Obama uh, before we roll into that and then roll into the war against Christianity that we are seeing and that will take you where we need to go. I've put a lot of thought into this. Actually, I was planning this episode uh, from September. Though, you know, life happens. And so hopefully if I walk you through it like I always try to do, you'll be able to see it more clearer. Uh, because children, it's not just about the whole trafficking part, okay, guys? It's not about the carnal part. There's more to that. And it's very important that we understand that. So let's start with the Durham probe, which is important. Or you know what? Let's start with tracking the Russia probe timeline. Like, we already know it, but I want us first, before we break down a little bit, just to listen to this special report by Fox News, um, where they discussed it, and I'll poke holes in it, of course. Here we go. The Trump presidency since the beginning, and it's not over. Tonight, Brett Baer takes a look back at how it all started and where it may go as we head into the new year. So help me God. Well before Inauguration Day, the Russia scandal that would follow him throughout his candidacy and into the White House and throughout three years of his presidency was set in motion. In July 2016, an official counterintelligence probe was opened into Russian interference in the election after an Australian diplomat, Alexander Downer, contacted the FBI about a May 2016 encounter with Trump campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos in which Downer said Papadopoulos told him the Russian government could assist the Trump campaign with damaging information about Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. With that info, the investigation launched. The gears were then in motion, and the question had been planted. Were individuals with the Trump campaign coordinating with the Russian government in its interference activities? Paul Manafort has resigned as campaign chairman amid a controversy over some consulting work. 
In the days after his victory, President-elect. Now let's just stop right there. On August 2016, Paul Manafort did not resign because of conflict, blah, blah, blah. Do you see the time? August 2016. He stepped down to take one for the team, hopefully honorable, right? But they came at him full speed ahead. They were out for blood. Let's be, let's be straight because we knew, okay? We already knew what they were planning. We already knew. So let's be very Trump. Mm, objective. Now that we see the past with today's eyes nearing 2020, think, how does it look now? Oh, it kind of looks like Manafort took one for the team, stepped down because they knew they were coming because we didn't know anything about Manafort at that time, right? But he had stepped down, right? Why? It was discussed for him to step down. Why? Now we know. Began to build his cabinet. Decision day for Donald Trump. The president-elect makes his first major national security picks, delighting conservatives and enraging Democrats. In early December 2016, one of those choices, new national security advisor Mike... Wait, they skipped something. In November after he was elected, president at that time, Barack Hussein Obama, was making decisions writing executive orders, appointing, creating new positions during the transition period. It is known that you do not create agreements. You do not write executive orders. You do not proceed to change anything that the next president will have to honor and hold on to. This is key. So if you look, all those activities aren't mentioned. They're just mentioning how Oh, in December, new National Security Advisor General Flynn. Of course the deep state would panic. They were so happy when they resigned him. Hmm. That was their biggest mistake. Michael Flynn met with Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak at Trump Tower. Finn and Kislyak later exchanged texts and phone calls amid the Obama administration's decision to impose sanctions on Russia in retaliation for hacking the DNC. This is how bad reporting looks. It should have been President Barack Hussein Obama decided to impose sanctions on Russia when he wasn't going to be president in 17 days. He's not allowed to do that. So the new national security advisor was liaising, saying, you know, he's not supposed to do that because that's not what you do during a transition period since the inception of our nation. So they were discussing totally fine phone calls. There was no collusion. It was all in line with his job because during the transition period, you are the quasi-official post holder. But, you know, the Democrats and Fox News right now are making it look all shady when it was all above board. It's kind of like when you're going to be the new CEO of a company, right? What happens? You come in, you learn everybody's names, you have discussions because you know you're taking over that position. It's the handover period, the transition period. And you, as National Security Advisor, let's say General Flynn, had the same level of clearance and ability to have discussions with people active with other foreign governments since it was in the capacity of the work that he was entering. Besides, he wasn't someone new to this, working with the DIA and having such a long career. But as we see, even Fox News 
put it in a framework, kind of pushing it to you like, oh, it wasn't, a, oh, yeah, the quasi-official and a position and the ability to do so. His phone calls were perfect. President-elect Trump praised Putin's decision to not retaliate, tweeting, I always knew he was very smart. At the beginning of 2017... Exactly. Why would he retaliate? That would be dumb. But he could have done it. Because imagine this. There's a new president coming in for Russia. Previous president. Let's pretend Putin's leaving, right? And some guy named Dmitry gets elected. Dmitry. So let's say he comes in. What if Putin gets upset that this new Dimitri guy is coming in and it's not his buddy, I don't know, Mikhail. So Mikhail's not getting elected. Putin's salty about it. So he decides to sanction America 10 days before Dimitri takes office. What's America supposed to do? Respond to it by saying, oh, we declare war or we're barring American thing? No, they're just like, oh my God, how petty is that? Again, the Democrats embarrassing our nation. Like, how does that look? Yeah, we're totally sanctioning. But you're not going to be president in 10 days. Yeah, so what? Now the other president has to deal with it. So General Flynn was mitigating that. And Russia came out and said, all right, we're just going to let it roll off our backs. It's just a couple of days till you guys swear in. We get it. And then we'll talk about the problems we have with the new president. So again, here we go. The Democrats embarrassing us on a global stage. 17 in an intelligence report, the director of national intelligence stated Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election with the intent to help President-elect Trump's election chances. There is. And part of that campaign apparently was $150,000 in Facebook ads. Come on. That's probably even a setup, too. Putin would never do that. You know why? Because nobody likes him. Why? Because his nation has a surplus. They have zero debt across the planet. They're the only nation with no debt. He's not stupid. Like, why does anyone think that Putin is stupid? He's extremely smart. Extremely smart. And he's proactive, never reactive. And, you know, what he did with the deal with Turkey, what he did with other deals, you know, selling his stuff and getting in, is all so that he can have leverage. He's a very smart person because he does not, he'll smile to the face of the EU, he'll smile to the face of the United States, but he will always keep you know, that extra card. That's how smart people work. And our president has a lot of Trump cards too. So just saying, this is exactly how it happened. So this Russia investigation, this hoax, was only because they picked Russia because everybody hates Russia. Everyone wants to kneel Russia. They could rally the troops of the United Kingdom, anyone under the crown. That would include Canada and Australia because Russia they can't control. They have zero debt. They don't owe anyone. In fact, you know, they're so big that the other countries can't not do business with them even though they don't like them. Like even if they put like embargoes all over Russia and excluded them from everything right? Russia would still survive just fine on their own. I mean, they did it as the USSR, didn't they? They survived just fine. Wasn't a great government, but they still survived. So, and super large landmass, right? Touches Eurasia, right? Both. Access to the Arctic, the Pacific. And they're on the continent of Europe, giving them access easy from the north to enter into the Atlantic. Come on, guys. Strategy.
is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. Why would there be any contacts between the campaign? Uh, Chris, the, the, th this is all a distraction, and it's all a part of a narrative to delegitimize uh, the election and, and, and to question the legitimacy of this presidency. On February 13th, the White House announced Flynn's resignation after it was revealed he had misled Vice President Pence about his sanctions-related conversations with Ambassador Kislyak. The FBI's investigation expanded. The FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. Ah, here's where he sets up the manufactured 302s against General Flynn. What kind of threat do you believe Russia presents to our democratic process, given what you know about Russia's behavior of late? Well, certainly, the, in my view, the greatest threat of any nation on Earth, uh, given their intention and their capability. Breaking out. Of and then, it's a bit of a stunner on a Tuesday afternoon. The president has fired James Comey. I was going to fire Comey. Uh, I, there's no of course we wanted to fire Comey. We wanted to fire him in 2016 if we could, but we didn't have the presidency, right? Dirty, dirty. H a higher loyalty. Think. What is the higher loyalty for him? Think. Again, who is they? Because the people we see, Soros, all of them, they're the visible ones. Think of all those people behind them. Think of all those pulling, Brennan, Comey, the Clintons, the Foundation, Clinton Foundation. Those are indeed the visibles. But remember, you never see the king. You never see the royal and it's not the royals that we know. Those are public facing again. But there is a point of one that shows it all. So again, the, the, the who are they? Who is that higher loyalty? I mean, you know, on this earth, do you think of anyone that could be a higher loyalty that the swamp, the deep state, the shadow government, the global one has? Where they penetrate every facet of our life where they control not only how we think, how we eat, how we look, how we act, but how we're supposed to function. That's one thing we have to think about. Again, prayer usually gives you that answer. Prayer usually brings you that peace to know that your higher loyalty lies within you, not to someone else. No good time to do it, by the way. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. In response, within days, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appoints former FBI Director Robert Mueller to serve as special counsel to take over and continue the Justice Department investigation. There is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign, but I can always speak for myself and the Russians, zero. After Comey's firing, a meeting between President Trump, Ambassador Kislyak, and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in the Oval Office 
raised even more eyebrows. Before we go to the break, let's just um, remember that. He fired Comey. Rosenstein installed Mueller. Mueller, who had passed the torch to Comey. Mueller, who had worked with Comey before in a coup against Bush 43, because Bush 43 was kind of like a loose cannon. He was one of those spoon-fed, you know, silver spoon in your mouth, daddy will take care of everything kind of guy. So... You know, they fixed him with that whole Ashcroft situation. So here comes his buddy, and he's like, don't worry, I'll put it in the roadblocks. We'll fix this. And then the president has a meeting with the representatives of Putin in the Oval Office and says, all right, guys, this is what's going on. Why? Think, who are the two people talking about the START agreement? Remember what the START agreement is. We've been talking about it all year. And remember, New Year's Day, I said China's going to play a key role. What have we been hearing about all year? China, China, China. Because China is the only one that Russia doesn't even have a hold on. This START agreement is huge. Remember, Putin's own words. One day we're going to wake up and there's going to be nuclear missiles coming in from outer space. If we don't renew this, it expires in 2021. Why is nobody talking about it? Now, that means that there's transparency between these powers. And that's very important because the higher loyalty that Comey's referring to is exactly where the fight lies. And your worst enemy can also be your best ally when you're fighting for good. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to this Christmas special. I just want to continue this timeline quickly so you can hear just how the mainstream media poses all that is going on. Was he telling the Russians that firing Comey was taking off legal and political pressure? Uh, Chris, that's not my uh, my interpretation, certainly, of the conversation. And I think what the president was trying to convey to the Russians is, look, I'm not going to be distracted by this this uh, all these issues that are here home. Uh, they, you know, that affect us domestically. After reports the special counsel's probe was widening into whether President Trump attempted to obstruct justice while in office, President Trump tweets. Quote, I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director. Witch hunt. The investigation became a family affair amid news of a previously undisclosed June 2016 meeting between Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and Russian lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya. Okay, let's talk about Miss Natalia. So Miss Natalia was actually barred entry to the United States barred entry to the United States. Some media mongol up from the crown in England made that connection. They set up that meeting. Are you listening? So what happened was she wasn't allowed. Her visa was denied to enter the United States. Whoop. And here we go. Cue for Loretta Lynch that comes in and lifts that hold and says she may enter the country. What? And at that time... And I'm going to tell you this at that time. So those of you that are listening and looking into the spying that happened before July 2016, Loretta Lynch gives the order. And she also had a pen register to investigate Manafort. So while they're sitting in the tower having this conversation with this phony lawyer, well, she's actually a lawyer, but she loves John McCain and all of them. She sits in the room. Guess what? 
Obama, Barack Hussein Obama. So Hussein and his cronies and Lynch and the NSA. Guess what? Manafort's phone was tapped. Even though he wasn't using it, they were listening to every word he said. Ask me. I probably used my crystal ball and saw it myself. And there they are having this conversation. You know, his son is kind of like, what are you talking about kids? I thought you were talking about like opposition research, you know, or something that we need to know about Hillary Clinton, because this is what people do. It's called, you know, Hillary Clinton could do it, but President Trump can. But let's stop. I thought there was something serious here. Like, what are you doing? We don't want to talk about children and adoptions. Like, what are you doing? And he walked out. He I'm going to tell you what, 16 minutes and 12 seconds. That is how long that meeting held. That's from entry to discussion to exit. Because the discussion itself was 9 minutes and 35 seconds. <laughs> so the other minutes were kind of like introductions. Let's sit down. Do you want some water? How's this? How's that? So they started wiretapping before July 2016. So Durham knows that. Barr knows. Hey, look, guys, if I know it, they know it. That's the bottom line. If I know it, they know it. Can, can everybody remember this? That meeting? Hmm. That meeting that then prompted an investigation in October of 2016? Huh. And then when Jeff Sessions was appointed as AG, the first thing I said, and I remember having this conversation with the former editor of Big League Politics. Yo, um, why did he appoint Sessions if Sessions has to, has to recuse himself? Well, what do you mean? Well, Sessions was part of that team, you know, that questioned the Russian lawyer in October of 2016. And you have to think about it. Think. This lawyer, how did they know in October of 2016 she met with them? Think about this. How did they know that this lawyer needed to be questioned right before the FISA warrant was submitted? You know, the application for the warrant was submitted. Wait a minute. Are you saying the NSA was listening in on their phone devices? Nuh-uh. Yeah. Everything. So can you see the fix now? This should be pretty simple. And all of you smiling, whoa, totally makes sense. Think, how did they know this meeting happened? How did they know what took place? And why is it in October they sat down and talked with her? Then you have to think. If Trump knew that Jeff Sessions had sat there and he was part of the team that questioned her, and I urge you to go to big league politics, I reported it, I think we published a report, not 2017, maybe, or 2018. You should look on it on Big League Politics. When I find it, I'll repost it just to remind you and maybe say, hey, Durham, look over here. They wiretapped Manafort's phone in June during this meeting. Loretta Lynch lifted her bar so she could enter the country. Look here. But that's not the point I want to make to you, just so that you can see how we're winning, okay? Trump knew that happened. Jeff Sessions knew that happened in October of 2016, before the elections. So then why would he appoint him AG if he knew he had to recuse himself? Hey, Whitaker. 
see what I'm trying to say? It's all a plan. And all of you sitting there, no, but they're walking around. Nobody cares if they're walking around. Let them walk. Reptiles don't really walk. They're on their bellies now. And they will be so for eternity. Because God is great. And he reveals everything in the end. Don Jr. issued a statement that he and the Russian lawyer had primarily discussed a program about the adoption of Russian children. Did you ever meet with any other person from Russia that you know? You know, I don't even know. I've probably met with other people from Russia. I mean, but certainly not in, not in the context of actual a formalized meeting mm. or anything like that. Because it, why would I? You know, in the grand scheme of things, how busy we were, it, it was much more important to doing this. This was a courtesy to an acquaintance. Fast forward to December. Michael Flynn pled guilty to making false statements to the FBI, admitting he lied to FBI agents during his interview about two discussions he had with Kislyak before President Trump took office. As the new year begins, Democrats continue to raise alarm bells. Congressman Adam Schiff tells reporters at a breakfast, quote, if you want to blind yourself, then you can look the other way. In March, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz launches an investigation into alleged surveillance abuses by the DOJ and the FBI. Wait a minute. Let's listen to Schiff's statement and Horowitz's statement. This is stenographic. Pay attention breakfast quote if you want to blind yourself then you can look the other way in march justice department inspector general michael horowitz launches an investigation into alleged surveillance abuses by the doj and the fbi during the 2016 presidential election and former fbi director james comey talks to us about the controversial text messages between the fbi's peter strzok and lisa page in which they were revealed to call the president a loathsome human an idiot and root for Clinton to win the election. If you knew back then, when you were in charge of the investigation, and you saw those texts between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, the level of animus they had against President Trump, what would you have done? I'd have removed both of them from any contact with significant investigations. All right, so let's just look at what Fox just put out. February 2018, Schiff was like, oh my God, how could you look the other way? We have to so look into it. Suddenly, March 2018, we've got Horowitz. Oh, we've got surveillance abuses. Wait a minute, wasn't it Russia probe? Wasn't it, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Are you listening? Because the Horowitz report was the FISA abuse surveillance concerns this is march 2018 right march 2018 surveillance abuse so think what prompted that what prompted the doj of the just the doj's ig to prompt it is it because uh, of the fisa court because judge collier was dirty is it because of her mm. what text didn't we get what information do they have that you haven't seen mm-hmm yeah, we're coming to it. Like I said, Horowitz and Storch are both under investigation. I'm just telling you now because you're going to see it later. It's like that candy now and later, right? As the scandal continued, a number of former Trump officials faced consequences. Manafort, Papadopoulos, former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. So remember, all of these people face consequences for not doing anything with Russia but for process crimes, like lying or forgetting stuff, you know, like Papadopoulos flying across the pond and then being questioned without a lawyer in a hot box and misspeaking jail. They just wanted something. Then they get Manafort and Cohen in a box. Cohen broke. 
He completely broke. He was like, he's broken. He's done. I'm going to be surprised if he doesn't walk out like, you know, now wanting to be a woman. You know, we saw that with Manning. They break you. They crush you. They will take you apart. They will hurt you where it hurts the most. And if you lack the training that they provide in order to do the hurt to you, you're going to collapse. For those of you out there that have dealt or learned with their training, you may survive, but they break you so hard that it's kind of like a plate. Even though you put it back together, you're going to see it. Cohen is broken. Manafort was smart. He just was like, I'm not listening to any deal you have to say. I don't want to know anything. I don't even want to consider anything. Just do your thing and leave me alone. And because he did that, they're like, well, let's pull this out. No statute of limitations on that. Let's pull that out. Well, that might not be true. Yeah, prove it. But that might not have happened. Yeah, prove it. How are you going to prove that they manufactured stuff when they're manufacturing 302s? If they want to stick you in jail because you won't break, there's nothing you can do. They can, what did I play yesterday? How he was hired as an artist to create counterfeit documents. Oh, so they could just counterfeit a document to say, yo, Joe. You were at this place and you had this, uh, I don't know, let's, um, you had a, uh, an account with, uh, with um, what is it, Bendel's or Macy's or whatever. Uh, let's go Tires, Tires R Us or something. And Joe, you had this account back in 1991. And you're just like, dude, I don't remember what I ate for dinner, let alone if I had something when I was a you know, young buck in my 20s. Yeah, so here's what the document says. Well, I, I don't know if that's real or not. Yeah, well, we got it from them, and there's a letter from Tires R Us saying, yeah, it's real, and it's like, okay, then. Um, I don't remember it, so I can't confirm it. Yeah, you don't want to confirm it. We're still going to hang it on your neck. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Masters of Disguise. Remember? How she slipped and told you that Bush 41 was the director of disguise of the CIA when JFK was taken out. Remember that? Remember the woman with the scar? I'm just saying. Traveling back into time, I'm just saying. Manufacturing of evidence. Manufacturing of facts. Manufacturing 302. If they can manufacture 302s and take it down to a FISA court, every single court in this land is compromised if they would do that. If they would spy on you relentlessly. If they would make stuff up. Shred stuff up. Plant stuff up. None of us are safe. That's the point. Among those who received prison time. Attorney General Jeff Sessions was shown the door in November. Just hours after the midterm elections, President Trump's Attorney General is cleaning out his desk at the president's request. In February, William Barr was sworn in as the new Attorney General. Weeks later, he delivered a summary of Mueller's report to Congress, which stated that the investigation found no evidence that the president any of his aides or any American coordinated with the Russian government's election interference. 
wait, that's very specific. Not the president. No one is his campaign. So Flynn, obviously not. Even though that judge was like, oh, you committed treason. Why is he on a bench again? And why is the AG of New York walking around again? Let's continue. But key point, no American. Oh, so are you saying that a foreigner did collude with Russia? In what way? Tell us. Was the FBI contacting the Russian contacts to plant stuff to make it look like Russia did? Yeah, see, Putin's always got his back. He's got his finger in every single pie because he's always got to have his backup. It's kind of like the, the rich guy on the block, right? Where you have the nice lawn, the nice fence, you know, the, the nice car, and everybody else around you doesn't. You got to put security systems everywhere, booby traps, right? Because you're like, damn, my house sticks out like a sore thumb. I got to protect myself. That's the way Russia is right now. Damn, I just paid off all the former Soviet states that I've got over 70 billion in surplus and everybody wants me and they want a finger in my pie. I got to reinforce and have the best security and I got to have leverage. Hmm. Leverage like Venezuela, Cuba, China, the Arctic. Fingers in every pie. Africa, keep going. So he's not dumb. They couldn't nail it on him. So that's where we're at. I'm going to leave it at that because the report was driving me insane. Now, let's talk about how the Democrats are so upset they want Prosecutor Durham to resign as Russia probe investigation heats up. So I said that to you over a week ago, and someone actually corrected me and said, oh, no, 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 they just asked for A.G. Barr. Oh, no, no, no. They want Durham gone, too. They just didn't tell you yet. I'm telling you. Because, you know, I got these special glasses and I could see stuff like no other. Several House Democrats are calling on Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham to resign, claiming he doesn't possess the personal integrity to serve in the best Department of Justice. This amendment reports that Durham is uh, scrutinizing former CIA Director John Brennan's role and the origin of the Russia probe. Now, the same lawmakers are also calling for Attorney General Barr's resignation. Former federal prosecutor Stephen Mulroy joins us now. Is, is this a good strategy, Stephen, attacking their integrity? Well, if you're asking for simply, you know, is this a politically viable strategy, I suppose attacking the integrity of the investigator preemptively in case he says anything negative about the initiation of the 2016 investigation by the FBI into alleged Russian contacts with the Trump campaign. I suppose maybe from that perspective it is, uh, but it's a little bit of a tougher case to make in the case of Mr. Durham, who has had a long reputation for being a you know, pretty much straight shooter, career prosecutor, who, uh, who tells it like it is. Yeah, throughout this process, these uh, career straight shooters that everyone exalts, uh, and, you know, once they start saying things that one political side of the aisle doesn't like, uh, they're the worst, uh, you know, most uh, politically driven people out there. They shouldn't be on the case. Uh, their careers mean nothing. I mean, th this sort of uh, thing the public has endured over and over again when it came to, 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 to the Mueller inv investigation. Do you think it will have any sort of impact ultimately on, on the outcome of these investigations? I doubt seriously it will impact the outcome of the investigation, although I should note that in the case of Mr. Durham, he did do one thing which I think provided ammunition to his critics. He, a half an hour after Attorney General Barr publicly criticized the Inspector General's report, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, Mr. Durham himself then also made a critical comment. This was 
highly unusual for a career prosecutor to do, A, about the Inspector General, who usually has a reputation for being uh, nonpartisan and well-respected, and B, to... Wait, A. Let's go with A. Nonpartisan, well-respected. That's rubbish. We all know that. And the reason the prosecutor came out is like, you loser. What? You're under investigation. You haven't told him. But he kind of did tell us during his testimony that he... Yeah, I asked him for papers, but we discussed things. They didn't give him anything. Oh, and I sat down with Durham and we had a discussion. He asked me questions. That's because you're under investigation, dude. To make such a comment while his own investigation, Mr. Durham's, was ongoing, that unusual move, I think, has provided fodder for some of his Democratic uh, critics to question whether he's really going to be a straight shooter this time like he has been in the past. Well, Stephen, what about uh, uh, Brennan, though, in the sense that... Uh uh, as more information comes out, uh, that there's been a greater sense that uh, he should be the focus of, of, of this sort of intense scrutiny and investigation, his calls and other things. Are you okay with this? Do you think that he is a legitimate, uh, he's a legitimate person of interest in, the, in regard to all of this? I think it's certainly legitimate for Mr. Durham to request uh, documents and maybe even uh, answering questions of Mr. Brennan because uh, the CIA was at least secondarily involved in the initial investigation back in 2016. However, I think it might be the case that the real focus here is on an FBI agent, Kleinsmith, who allegedly falsely denied in a warrant application uh, to get a, a, a search warrant that he had gotten some of his information from the CIA. I think the focus may be on him from what we've been hearing. And if that's the case, then CIA director, former CIA director Brennan is really kind of a material witness uh, as opposed to actually being the target of the investigation. Yeah, okay, he's totally the target of the investigation. So let's just stop it right there. It seems like everyone just keeps throwing cover for all of these people. Here's where we're going to get into our special now. And I'm going to play a clip from you for you um, from Fox yesterday. Reverend Graham, take a listen. Magazine's president in the piece, Timothy Dalpra Bull uh, questions the unconditional loyalty of evangelical Christians to the administration and asks readers to reconsider their unwavering ring support. Uh, he writes, quote, we nevertheless believe the evangelical alliance with this presidency has done damage to our witness here and abroad. The cost has been too high. American evangelicalism is not a Republican pack. All of this as the son of the magazine's founder, Franklin Graham, is taking issue with the publication invoking his father, Billy Graham, in its original editorial and he had this to say to Fox News. My father would be uh, very uh, disappointed. This magazine is way off, uh, way off target. Uh, they're a very liberal left-wing magazine now. I am joined now by the senior editor of The Federalist, Chris Bedford. Um, okay, so we're still talking about this, so I guess that's good for Christianity today. I think that they wanted our attention, they wanted to sell magazines, and they did. Uh, but this is just one simple editorial. It doesn't necessarily speak for all of evangelical Christians. But what do you make of, of the publication now doubling down after getting a, you know, wide criticism? It's the editor's last stand. He's, he's retiring in a few weeks, and this is his last stand. Because you got to wonder, what's changed? We knew who President Donald Trump was when he was running for office. We knew about his background. But we also have known how he's, how he's governed himself and the policies he's implemented, which have been incredibly friendly towards evangelicals. So this is a last stand shoot, uh, shot from Christianity Today's outgoing editor saying that he's taking a stand. But, you know, evangelicals, I do not think, are going to be fleeing the president because they're looking at someone who has stood by them more than any Republican president on, on 
Planned Parenthood and abortion on judges and judicial nominees, on moving the embassy uh, in Israel. These are things that Republicans had promised to do for decades. And the evangelical vote really does appreciate someone who actually stands by their word. That is a meaningful thing in this. Not only that, but you have to look at his family. Donald Trump's got an amazing family that clearly loves him and he loves them back, the people closest to him. That's not lost on evangelical voters either. So there's not really an alternative for them. And this is someone who they can stand by, generally speaking, even if he may have some personal flaws in his past. Okay, and so I just wanted to say before we head for the top of the hour break that it was the late Graham, Reverend Graham, that initiated that prayer the day before the elections that evening where it was worldwide. And this president, who may not be your typical textbook, what you think a Christian should look like guy, he had prayers from around the world. I participated in that prayer is the most important thing anyone can do it is the most ultimate weapon against evil at all times even when we feel that there's no floor under us even if we realize that everything was an illusion when your reality cracks that is all you have and that prayer is always answered maybe they don't give you the answers you want or the way you want it and sometimes the answer brings you pain but it is from pain that you grow Imagine having a life being silver, you know, being fed by a silver spoon since youth. When you are headed in adversity, when you are taking on, you know, it's kind of like throwing out the prince's son into war. You put him, you know, you give him a sword and you're like, go. And he's like, dude, I don't know how to fold my socks. Right. Uh, Prayer. We're going to continue with that right after this short break. Okay. Grab that eggnog, grab those snacks. Because you're about to enter some really odd perspectives. See you in a bit. Welcome to Red State Talk Radio. listening to Tori Says for the next hour. I'll be your host, Tori. We'll be discussing news, foreign and domestic, unfiltered news. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. Merry Christmas. Glorify him. Today is not a coincidence that we're going to talk about children. Every child that comes into this world is his child. Michael Johns tweeted something yesterday and, and I, I, I really like what he tweets a lot. And I'll read it to you for those of you that are on the road or listening to me, you know, 
doing things, cooking, whatever it is that you may be doing now, the first thing I would like to tell you, whatever you're doing, God bless you. He loves you. And, you know, have faith always and pray. As the world prepares to celebrate the birth of, the, the birth of Christ tonight and tomorrow, keep in mind the millions globally being persecuted for their Christian faith. I retweeted it where he was, uh, where he retweeted from open doors, the the 50 worst offenders around the planet right now, persecuting Christians. Christianity, as you notice at the end of my first hour, I played that clip is completely under attack. We even had, you know, Christianity today attacked the president so you have to think, why would something like this be happening to a man who is a praying president, but not necessarily the ideal of what you would think is a textbook Christian? Because we forget the prodigal son. We forget that he knows that we all commit sins. He knows our, every single flaw we have because he created us. And we are essentially part of him. We're his children. So then who are we to criticize if our own father doesn't criticize? I'm going to finish this clip about this attack on the president using Christians. Christians, because the thing is, there's so many factions of Christianity that all fall under one, right? So... I'll say it again. At first, it was only the historical Christians, what we now know as Orthodox Christians. Then they created the Catholic Church. Then we had Evangelicals, Pentecostal, you know, the, the uh, Protestants, Lutherans. These all came out because everybody likes to adopt uh, the core of something that makes sense to them better, right? We have, you know, services in different languages, uh, more culturally attuned, etc. I mean, the Protestant church was created by um, the king of England to allow him to divorce. That's why he had so many wives. I mean, there's versions. But at the core, there's only one God. And at the core, there was Jesus that he sent to help us understand what we're how we're supposed to be acting, how we're supposed acting. I don't want to say acting. How we are supposed to be living as one, united, caring for those next to us, because we're all part of each other too. And I use science yesterday to talk about it. How we're just a bunch of atoms intermingling, creating boundaries in some way. But not really. We all think we're solid, but we're really not. Let's finish this up so you see what the real war is. Uh, Timothy Durham-Ball, he is about to retire, as you mentioned. Um, but I'm just wondering, before he goes, who would he recommend then that evangelicals should stand behind? Because clearly, I don't think he's saying, okay, so why don't you just stand behind one of the numerous Democratic presidential candidates? So exactly what does he want evangelicals to do? To vote somebody into the office that's pro-abortion? I mean, what is his stance? What is his message? What is his goal, his motive? I don't know. What is he doing? 
Now, there's a sad history of this with the evangelical voters, but the first time they ever became really politically active wasn't for a Republican. It was for Jimmy Carter because he fit into their morals code, and he, he was a man, a God-fearing man who they looked at and said, this is a good man. And what happened is Jimmy Carter was elected. He turned around and didn't uh, put a single evangelical into his cabinet. They were cut off. They didn't have his number. They weren't able to speak with the president the way they were able to speak with Donald Trump. Uh, there's not a single candidate out there that I've seen on the right or on the left who is willing to stand up and at great cost to himself and his family as much as Donald Trump has for the things that Christians matter when we're under attack, Christians are under attack from a lot of people in this country. Should the president be worried at all? I would not expect there's going to be a huge exodus from the evangelical movement. Now, if this keeps on getting called a liberal magazine, but keep in mind, it is liberal evangelical lean on the left of the evangelical, but it's still a pretty Republican magazine. And a lot of the, a lot of the evangelical voters will still come out uh, just like they did in 2016, I suspect. Okay. Graham has come out. He has said that Christianity Today doesn't represent most evangelicals. There's a Fox News poll that says he's right. I mean, 67% of white evangelicals in this country do not only not support impeachment, they do not support removing the president from office. But White evangelicals. Always putting those categories, aren't they, guys? Always those categories. Right where they're, you know saying something that makes sense suddenly white suddenly male suddenly this <sighs> makes you think right so we all know that across the world christianity is being persecuted we see it you know from where omar did her divorce in burkina faso where they're slaughtering christians we see it where they're giving them the ultimatum. You either bow down to Allah and follow Islam or you're dead. That's the way they operate. So where are we? Well, I'm going to play a video for you that's going to be really hard to stomach. It was actually a comedy skit back in 2017. The, t the Jim Jeffrey show. Now, this is going to be really hard to listen to. But it's really important you do because the fact that Hollywood, the fact that these people mock something so important is incredible. Take a listen. Everyone knows that big corporations love marketing to kids, and the younger, the better. You want to get kids when they're young. You want to get them having some kind of emotional feeling about the brand. And one of the most powerful groups targeting kids isn't a corporation it's religion the church is losing hold on so i just wanted to say that marketing expert said we want them young we want them to have an emotional connect connection to the brand think are the democrats a brand i'm just saying keep that in mind okay now here's where you hear the laughs while they're showing christ lifting his cross losing market share because millennials aren't showing up so Christians are going after the next generation of kids. Evangelical Christian groups operate programs inside public schools across the US for kids as young as five. And one of the biggest groups is called the Good News Club. I met with Reverend Brian Green to discuss it. Or is this guy just some Amish farmhand? To make sure he's legit, I drilled him on the basics. Now keep in mind, this conversation is gonna be really hard to stomach, but I wanna tell you, the reverend was very composed. He did not 
you know, show disdain for what the man is about to ask him and tell him. He did not show any animosity toward him, even though Jim Jeffries did. You can hear it from the words, but I'm telling you what you can't see, which is the facial expression. He seemed so at peace and didn't even show pity. I, you know, you would feel sorry for someone in some sense, but he actually was looking at him with like love and saying, are you for real? With love, not like pity, love, which was, wow. You believe that Jesus will come back to visit us? He's going to return and that's, that will be the end. Do you believe that all animals come from two animals being on a boat? Yes. He's got a heat? Yes. How do we know he's a he? He says he is. God has a penis, right? Well, he, he does in the, in the sense of Jesus Christ. But Jesus definitely had a penis. That doesn't bother you at all to talk like that, does it? Just constantly talking about genitals and everything. It's, uh... You hear that? That's really bad. It's really bad. Just You should see his expressions if you, if you can stomach it. Because I actually prayed for this guy. I, I'm telling you. I've watched this video twice, once in September when I wanted uh, to show it, to, to, to run it, the audio for you guys, to, to talk about this on Christmas Day. And then once again, um, you know, when I was prepping for the show, I, I literally said a prayer for a soul. I am who I am. I am what God made me, young man. I am what God made me. Yep, he's real. So how about these good news clubs? Are school kids actually signing up? They're getting as many kids at some of these meetings as I wish I had in my churches. But if you look beyond the positive name, good news clubs have a pretty broad definition of good. Like this lesson plan. When you complain about the meals your mum or dad cooks, it's a sin. And sin is punishable by death. Seems a little heavy for five-year-olds. So why is it working so well? Our marketing expert explains. What advertising marketing also does is they tell you that you're not okay the way you are you have to use our product in order to be okay okay so that's true right in all aspects the democrats are telling us that too aren't they just saying because even though she's talking about a product and he's going to talk about religion applying marketing i'm telling you the state of our of our country right because the children is important which will evolve throughout this hour but listen marketing is a very useful tool and the mainstream media that includes Fox too, that includes Hollywood, that includes music, that, in, that includes magazines are all telling you something's wrong with you and you have to change. So to recruit kids to religion, you got to sell them on the whole eternal damnation problem. You should tell kids about hell. The Bible talks about hell as being a place where the flame never goes out, rotting and and heat and fire and festering wounds just never going away, never healing. And that's, that's kind of the, the, the sense you ought to have about not wanting to go to hell. Couldn't you just teach these kids be good to each other, love? Isn't that inherently in us? It's As interesting that you say that. Because you can watch babies and they know if they hit each other and the other child cries, that child will feel remorse. A child can't even speak a language, can feel remorse when it hurts others. The Bible does say that we have a conscience, God built it into us, but that's what makes us guilty. The, the simple rule, treat. Exactly. The conscience we have is what makes us guilty. 
when you have a con- you can you could do something unwillingly and still feel guilty about it right you can walk out of I've done this so many times and they're like please ma'am just go away I walked out with like a box of croissants once because um, I like to put like my bread products at the top of the cart so I do self checkout dude I am so funny about checking out food it's ridiculous I do not want people packing my stuff but I left it there and I walked out. And when I got home and I unpacked it, I called the supermarket and said, I walked out with like a box of croissants. I didn't mean to. I'm going to come down and pay for it. They were like, whatever. Yeah, you can come down. I was like, I'm really, really sorry. It was left at the top. And they were like, whatever. It's fine. But I still felt guilty because I did that. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So guilt is essentially built in. It's like a fail-safe program, like your computer knowing that it's not processing correctly, right? When your computer doesn't process correctly, the guilt is what makes it hang because it's like, oh, I'm stuck. Let me fix this. So we can feel guilty for things we've done and things we didn't mean to do. It is an innate quality our soul has to repent because we have that, you know, primordial sin, Treat people as you'd like to be Okay, treated. well, somebody's got to teach that. But one group is teaching that. To combat the Good News Club, they're offering fun, science-based after-school clubs that skip all that scary fire and brimstone. I spoke to the club's national director. Our after-school club uh, focuses on teaching children uh, critical thinking skills, basing their beliefs on the best scientific knowledge available. It sounds great. It sounds great. And what's the name of your club? The After School Satan Club. <laughs> Clearly a catchy name, because it made the news everywhere. The new after-school Satan Club. You bring up Satan, you bring up Satanists, and you elicit a reaction. So Especially I put it on my Facebook page. Especially when you think about putting it into school right. somehow, someway. And with snap. Okay, so before we continue with this, did you hear that? Yeah, the after-school Satan Club. What do they focus on? Science. Right? Science. Technology. Facts and things like that. That's right. They're offering snacks. So what exactly do these guys believe? We're uh, atheistic Satanists. I'm an atheist. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, that means I believe in nothing. So you believe in nothing? We don't believe in a literal Satan. You don't believe in an actual Satan? No. So, a Satan club run by people who don't believe in Satan with a fun science curriculum that never mentions Satan. Are these Satanists just trying to f*** with people to make a point? Or do they actually want to give kids an alternative to Christian clubs? There's 3,800 Good News groups, clubs across America. How many branches do you have? As of right now, we don't have any currently in operation. Okay, so you're losing this battle against the Christians. They've got 3,800 and you've got zero. Don't you think that you could maybe market it better, call yourself the Critical Thinking Club? No. You say you're Satanist, but you don't actually believe in Satan. We are Satanists. We are self-identified Satanists. It's like saying I'm a unicornist, right? I like no. the, I've heard of unicorns. I don't believe in unicorns. This misconception comes from a supernaturalist point of view. Satanism itself is predominantly... <sighs> the problem with her principled and complex argument is that it will never f***ing sell. She needs a message that's simple, emotional, magical. You know, like the Christians. Uh, guess it's up to me to shape impressionable young minds before it's too late. Hello, kids. Welcome to the Jim Jeffries Actual News Club. These are the little things in life that the Bible will not teach you. When you get married, always put the house in your name. Very important. Many teachers will tell you if you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. That's what they call a lie. 
many of you will never achieve greatness because greatness isn't inside you. <laughs> success will not make you happy. I'm what? very successful and I'm miserable as f <laughs> In Jim's after school class, you can swear all you want. <laughs> quiet, quiet. Do you think if heaven and hell doesn't exist and when you die, it's just like falling asleep, would you still be nice to other people? Yes. Okay, repeat after me. Don't be a Don't be a That's all I have to teach you. Class dismissed. So they make it funny and they talk about it in a very funny way. But the thing and the truth is, is that children are always the target. Always the target. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a few children that you probably have heard of, probably have stumbled on YouTube, probably throughout the news. I'll introduce you to a few children, and I'll tell you how children are targeted with, what do they call it? Scientific research and methods and advancement. And remember, the 19-year-old flanking the highest-ranking officer during that meeting. Remember how you are handpicked from a very young age. That is what, um, you know, we need to think. Let me see if I can just introduce this first. Age of three, but could play Mozart on the piano. Well, you might just be a child prodigy. Hey guys, Julia here for D News. There's not any good figures for how many child prodigies there are in the world, but we do know there are enough for plenty of reality shows to be made about child prodigies. These unique children possess remarkable abilities in fields like art, music, or math, and most possess incredible memories. These abilities at a young age almost seem unnatural, which is actually where the word prodigy comes from. Seriously, Andrew Solomon, psychology writer, says the word prodigy comes from Latin for omen, or a monster that violates the natural order. Now, to define what a prodigy is, we can look to a couple of different sources. Some psychologists consider a prodigy to be anyone under 10 with remarkable abilities in a specific area. Some are even considered geniuses. According to Lewis Terman, who created the IQ concept, the average IQ is about 100. Any score over 110 is considered superior intelligence, and anything over 140 is genius. Many kids who are considered math prodigies have IQs ranging from 134 to 147, and music prodigies have IQs of around 108 to 142, way over what Mensa reports as average. I know, I know, we could debate the merits of IQ, but that's a whole other episode. The thing is, the link between IQ and prodigy is hard to pin down. The science of prodigies is hard to pin down. There's not a lot of great research into why some children are born with remarkable talents. One small study of five families published in the journal Human Heredity shows there might be a link between prodigy and autism. Lead researcher... Prodigy and autism. Vaccines, autism. Prodigies, autism. Assistant professor of psychology at Ohio State University, Joanne Rusatz, believes this link might have to do with the way memory is stored in the brain. Typically, we have two places to store memory in our brain, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. The hippocampus stores long. Okay, so that's a lie. I'm telling you that now. Even though it's a misconception and a lot of people peddle it, they keep telling us that our memories are stored in the brain. It's not. Term memories like back states, names, that sort of thing. 
but the prefrontal cortex stores things like riding a bike, tying your shoes, basically muscle memory. See, this is misinformation that people get. So your brain doesn't store anything. Your brain is like a motherboard and each separate area of the brain processes that information for you. But where it's stored is not in the brain. According to Ruth Satz research, prodigies and some people with autism use the prefrontal cortex to store those long-term memories. So remembering facts, dates, even a piece of music is literally like riding a bike for them. It's in their muscle memory. This is what she believes makes a child prodigy. So what happens to all these child prodigies when they grow up? Well, they're still there, we just don't hear about them because while they might be excelling or at the top of their field in, say, medicine or computers, that doesn't make them stand out like a three-year-old playing Mozart. As psychologist Ellen Winner told the New York Times, only a fraction of gifted children eventually become revolutionary adult creators. So where do all these children go is the question. Let me introduce you to some children. Visiting New York City for the first time is an exciting experience for many. But for William Zhang, he has an extra reason to smile. In a few days, he would be playing Carnegie Hall. The six-year-old from Atlanta, Georgia, won first prize in the American Prodigy International Piano and String Competition. What got him there was this amateur video taken by his father. He's playing Mozart, one of his favorite composers, along with Bach and Chopin. Music brings me happiness and I want to bring the audience happiness. Zhang's parents say William always responded to music. Whenever there's music in the house, he jumps and he moves. So we just feel he loves music. When he was two, they bought him a $20,000 piano. Their friends thought they were crazy, but they had a hunch he would take a liking to the instrument. This video was taken when William was one. Zhang's parents wanted him to start lessons at two or three, but everyone told them he was too young. We feel very frustrated. He can punch a little key and make some beautiful sound. Why don't you teach him? But no, nobody wants to teach him. So his parents, who didn't play instruments themselves, taught him to play baby songs. Then at four and a half, he began piano lessons. Today, he practices up to three hours a day. It's like the best team, parents, students, and the teacher. We work together. Okay, so these people obviously don't speak English well. He's Chinese-American. He's part of this program, right? Now I'm going to introduce you to something a little bit more different. Something that will be like, what? I have seen evidence of telepathy in, in many people. Meet five-year-old Ramses Sanguino. His mother believes he's a child genius. She considers him a savant, a rare individual who has remarkable talents that defy their age and experience. Since he was a baby, I think um, he didn't like toys. He just loved reading books. That's an old periodic table. That's right, it's an old periodic table. Whilst other children his age might just be learning to read, Ramses is apparently able to read in several languages. Midori. good job. E. 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 
and he can even tackle algebra. But his mum's boldest claim is that he's telepathic, as when she thinks of a number, he can read her mind. Okay, mission two. 81. The answer of mission three is 99. 99! Oh my goodness! Congratulations! We have a special connection, a really tight connection. I think it's a wonderful thing that he is, uh, he does some telepathy. But Isram's is telepathic. His talents have drawn the attention of an expert in the field. Today I'm going to go and see Ramses, who's a five-year-old autistic boy, and he is a very special boy. He has the ability to read at least seven or eight languages, and his mother claims he started to read languages when he was two years old. He started doing algebra when he was four years old. And on top of that, he actually has demonstrated telepathy. Dr. Diane Powell is a neuroscientist who's studying telepathy and its potential link with autism. She believes that it may represent an alternative method of communication between autistic children and their parents. If you have your primary language compromised, then that would be a perfect setup for telepathy because here you have a child and a parent who desperately want to communicate with one another. Today, Dr. Powell is going to test Ramsey's ability to identify numbers by reading his mother's mind. For this experiment to be scientifically rigorous, we need to have randomized stimuli. And so in order to do that, I'm using a site called random.org. Today, based on whatever numbers are generated, we're going to select cards, and then I will take the cards and I'll have them face down and I'll hand them one to one to the mother. We're going to get the numbers now. So here are our numbers. Whilst Ramses waits in another room, five numbers between one and nine are selected by a random number generator. They are then represented by playing cards with an ace representing the number one. As it's claimed that Ramses can see the number by reading his mother's mind, Nix holds the cards and asks him to tell her the number. Ramses, what number I have here? Good job. Uh, one. Francis, what number I got here? One. Good job. What number I got here? A. Did you, did you say, what did you say? You say eight. Mm -hmm. Good job. Okay. Good job. Stay Good. there. So I just want to tell you guys, even though you're hearing British commentary, this is actually taped in the United States. And how do I know this? Uh, first of all, the child was holding onto an object and it had a Ross price sticker on the back. Uh, it looks like a very humble family, single mom. Her name is Nyx, N-Y-X, which is also in uh, Greek mythology considered the goddess of night. Uh, she brought night 
covers the cloak of day. She seems to be an artist. There's a lot of paintings. Uh, I actually love her paintings. Uh, all around the house, there's so much art. The child has long hair. Um, and uh, the doctor uh, actually uh, said those numbers, and the child guessed uh, three out of five. And that was probably because the child was not focusing, but also after he got the number one, the mom was thinking, oh, why can't you just do the same thing as number one? This is some process, and this is how the kid kind of failed on the next number, but got all the rest. Well, one way to look at it is he, he got three out of the five correct. To get three of them correct, it would be one out of nine times one out of nine times one out of nine, which is one out of 729. The results, whilst encouraging, aren't conclusive, but Nix maintains that her son's abilities are out of this world, and she's not concerned that he may be able to read her mind. And for Dr. Powell, her research continues. Now, research, autism, prodigies, and think, what kind of rise in autism have we had in the past 30 years? Now, I want to bring you to something else that is going to blow your mind. Um, this just happened. It was actually published. Sorry. It was actually published um, uh, a few days ago uh, by the Post, um, New York Post, uh, that I saw it a few days ago where uh, a child was uh, 17 and just received his master's degree in physics. But this is a report from when he earned his bachelor's degree in physics. Take a listen. A 14-year-old physics major has become the youngest person ever to graduate from Texas Christian University. Carson Healy was among more than 2,000 students getting degrees on Saturday at the Fort Worth School, where he also minored in Chinese and math. While his achievements have already put him in the history books, the self-described normal dude has already set his eyes on getting graduate and doctorate degrees in quantum mechanics. But he doesn't see himself as any different from others his age. So I just wanted to say, I'm going to pull up the right clip. I think I set it up wrong. Uh, what I, I noticed from the report that happened um, just the other day is the mother. And I'm saying this again because I know it sounds um, a little bit offish on that sense. But this child is obviously an omen or a prodigy, as they say, right? And what's incredible is that people don't seem to understand that these children, these omens, uh, and that's what prodigy means, that's why I played that clip for you um, to hear, are pretty intense lining up you know we talk about vaccinations and i understand that there is a need uh in order for us to uh deter diseases that may occur uh, because of human-born diseases right human-born diseases but um 
there's another reason that we have them. See, they used to be effective until this happened. And before, before I get to that, remember how I've said, before I get to that video, I just want to take a hiatus so you understand where I'm going with this. I have talked to you about how your memories are stored in your genetics. I've also talked many, many times telling you how vaccinations, medications in general, have vessels, hidden vessels that alter our genetic makeup right? Any insult we have to our body. Like for me, I'm a smoker. My genetic makeup has changed because of that. Why? I have a better tolerance. I have a higher clearance rate. And that doesn't happen overnight. I remember when I was pregnant with my last child, I went to the doctor's office and he said, are you, are you, um, he's like, so I looked at your blood work and everything. Uh, you know, and I just had just found out, right, like from blood work when I was being told that I was pregnant. He's like, all right, so you're not a smoker because I would have. And I was thinking, no, man, the minute I knew that I was pregnant, I stopped smoking. But apparently within less than 48 hours, I had cleared most of the nicotine that could be detected, in my, even though I was a smoker. So that means my genetic makeup has already altered, obviously, because I started smoking under stress. You know, I picked it up in the field and that was it. After that, it was like downhill. So that's like my stress thing. It's a very bad thing. Everyone has some form of addiction, biting their nails, drinking, drugs. Uh, Mine is nicotine. And it's not the nicotine. Okay, let me get this straight. Not my not the nicotine. And I'll tell you why. When I went to boot camp. You know, obviously I told them that I was smoking. So they gave me a box of, and it was fairly new back then, right? They were really, really, really new, really new nicotine patches. We're talking nineties now. Those were really new. And the government gave me a box of them and sent me away, you know, from medical after, you know, the intake. And I was in these sweatpants for like three days. I was tired of it. And I go back to the barracks and, you know, I stick, a sticker on and I'm like, this is supposed to help me with cigarette cessation. So I, I went the next day to medical, um, just to get like some shots and, uh, do some special tests. And then I was like, Hey, I need another one of those boxes. They really work. He's like, what do you mean? You got a box of 24. I was like, Oh, well I use them all. Like I used all of them. That's the, that's no joke. I was kind of like embarrassed cause I looked really stupid, but I did use them all. But so now I know my habit is the actual motion and the inhaling part, addiction. And that's something that we use as a crutch as human beings. But what I'm getting to is it's a genetic change. My genetic change is the clearance rate of the nicotine. Because obviously I used a whole patch and didn't have the jitters. I was very tired. And I think that day I even snuck a nap under the bunk pretending to tuck it in. That was my thing. I would like intertwine my fingers in the mesh and pretend that I was tucking in the sheets so that I can catch like five minutes of sleep. But why? Why are we seeing this change? Take a listen. 50 or 150, we all like to feel smart. After all, the minds of intelligent people like Einstein, Tesla, or Stephen Hawking have no doubt helped shape the world we live in. So is it feasible that we could genetically improve the intelligence of our entire species? DNA is the basic code of life found in every living organism. And this DNA is made up of genes, which in turn are made up of four smaller parts called nucleobases, represented by the letters A, T, G, and C. 
In humans, these bases are arranged as three billion pairs, which essentially act as a blueprint for everything the cells in your body need to do. Literally all that you are, from the way you look and act, is defined by the organization of these four biological compounds. And scientists have been able to find connections between the way genes are organized and certain traits you exhibit, from your sex to your eye color and even diseases you may develop. It was actually the Human Genome Project which first began to analyze and map all the genes in the human body. The initial project took over a decade and $3 billion to complete with teams across the entire globe working together. Today, with a much smaller team, the same could be accomplished in a few days for only $4,000. And the more sequenced genomes we accumulate, whether it be from plants or microbes or humans, the more we have to compare and contrast the traits we see on the outside with the gene combinations we find on the inside, and that's exactly what the Cognitive Genomics Project hopes to achieve. By using over 2,000 people with IQs over 150 and plans to bring on 20,000 more subjects, researchers at the BGI Institute in China are looking at the genetic basis for intelligence. In other words, they're scanning... Hold on. The BGI in China, um, and then we have Chinese people in America, and then the shadow government works with China. And they all have links with China. And we're sharing intelligence with China. And we're doing all this stuff with China. And we're experimenting with people everywhere with China. We're harvesting organs with China. We're doing all these things with China, China, China. We're trying to use artificial intelligence. Again, what have we seen grow in the past 30 years? The instances of autism. How many people have linked it with vaccinations? Tons. How do you suss it out? How do you create more of these to understand them? The tight link between prodigies and autism. ...through the DNA of thousands of intelligent people to look for patterns that may be responsible for making them smart in the first place. Of course, this is a much more complicated task than looking for, say, a disease pattern. Tay-Sachs and Huntington's disease are both caused by a single gene mutation and are easily recognized. Hair and eye color, on the other hand, depend on multiple genes interacting, though with proper analysis it can still be predicted. But traits like personality or intelligence are almost certainly the result of thousands of genes interacting in unique ways, a pattern which scientists have yet to discover. And the truth is, they may never find one. But what happens if they do? I mean, it could be a future of genius babies. With the advent of in vitro fertilization, you might be able to create multiple embryos and scan their DNA. Scientists would then be able to identify which traits are most likely in each embryo based on their genes, allowing parents to essentially choose which baby they most desire. For example, this embryo has a 50% chance of being exceptionally musical, or this one has a 58% chance of having an IQ over 150. In this way, without actually changing the genetic information, but rather screening it, we may actually be able to increase the intelligence of future generations. But what about you? Could you ever change your genetic makeup to make you smarter, faster, or stronger right now? Follow us over to Jake's channel, Vsauce3, where we explain how it might be possible. Click it is possible. <laughs> What's the leading thing that they're using for cancer, guys? Gene therapy. What is the biggest way to eliminate... Okay, let me take it a step back. So children that have been harmed with vaccine injuries or parents that believe that the vaccine has induced autism don't have any remedies, 
right? They have a spectrum now, right? So first it was just autistic. Now it's a spectrum. Now almost everybody's autistic somewhere, somewhere on the spectrum. That Greta chick's on the spectrum. All these things are popping out because these are all things they've been investigating for more than four decades. So they would handpick children at very young ages that they would find in public school systems. I mean, I was part of one of these programs too. I was handpicked in kindergarten. In the first grade, a bus would take me from my elementary school and drive me over to a high school so that I could do math. I'm just saying. It was, they target the children so that way they can learn because that's what scientists do. And when you want to reverse engineer something, you do it. But here's the thing. You can't do that. One thing that I love to talk about is my time when I worked with the Craig Vettner Institute. Do you know who that guy is? He's the most awesome scientist ever. He was actually one of the two scientists that decoded the whole human genome under the White House uh, premise. And guess who paid for that, guys? Yes, Bill Clinton. And so he went off and created his own lab where, um, and remember, he was a high school dropout, didn't great, get good grades, but he was a genius. Because the one thing that smart people can't do is beat to people's drums, right? And so I loved him. And going to see his um, lab to learn about genetics in the sense of dumbing it down during my research, right? He was working with... Um, Mycobacterium genitalium. The, and I've spoken to you guys about it before. Uh, this is uh, the bacteria that causes you UTIs, right? Urinary infections when you can't be and it burns, right? Um, that's what it causes. Well, that is one of the most simplistic organisms we have one of them on the planet, as simple. It doesn't even have a cellular wall. It's myco, it's myco which means it looks like boogers, right? It's just there. Um, and what he did was he stripped all the functions in the genome of this bacteria, and, and it's very small genome uh, because it doesn't have a cell wall, it's less complex, right, everything. So essentially what he did was he knocked out all the genes that would do anything, and he just kept the genes for that bacterium to maintain metabolism. I mean, the, the, the one thing that defines life is the ability to metabolize, right? Do you eat? Do you breathe? Do you, you know, um, undergo photosynthesis? That's metabolism, right? That's how you are living and processing. You're a, cong a conglomerate of working together. Now, that DNA is very small. It's circular. All bacteria have circular DNA. Remember, I've talked to you. My specialty was mitochondria, which are actually bacteria that live in our cells that are the reason our cells have power right? They are the batteries of the cell. So there's symbiosis. We need to work with the bacteria in order to survive. And we don't attack it. They have a double wall. You know, that's their job, whatever. So going to his lab, he did that. He even inserted his own gene to show that he can play God and manipulate it. So he took it from the top to reverse engineer down to the bottom where it's basically just existing. He got a ton of money from Exxon because he was hired to create that bacteria to spit out fuel, like basically use the bacteria to generate fuel. That's what he wanted to do. So he took the simplest organism. The one thing he successfully did was make it turn blue. Now, having seen it, it's incredible. But here's the thing. 
in the laboratory, in a controlled environment where you control the temperature, the air, the particles in the air, everything. The bacteria is inert. I mean, it's there, but it's not virulent, meaning it doesn't cause infections like urinary infections. The minute, though, you put it out into nature, something happens. Even though you knocked out the genes, there's crosstalk, something called epigenetics. Now, I did do an interview a long time ago, Hagman talking about epigenetics, crosstalk between genes. It's very targeted, and I take this back all the way to the early times before we had even power, how they were targeting specific children of specific hair color. Usually it was girls with red orange hair, like the gingers. You know how they would say gingers are evil in England and stuff, right, that they were different? That's the difference. So let's say at this point, they're at the point that they can genetically modify. I mean, I've, I've, I've been to that lab. I've seen that they've genetically modified bacteria. But what about complex DNA? You will have to rewrite the genetic code with something like gene therapy or uh, retroviral, you know, inserted through, you know, your vaccine or medication or food, something that can manipulate your genetic code to be more vulnerable to open up and add on. I've talked about this before many, many times. So here's where we go to, let's pretend that they found a way. Now listen to this. A 17-year-old is now believed to be the youngest student to ever receive a master's degree from TCU. Carson Huey Yu walked during this afternoon's ceremony where he accepted his master's degree in physics. Fox Force David Centendry was there for the graduation and spoke with the graduate and his family. Hey, David. Hey, Blake. Well, the 17-year-old first received his undergraduate degree at age 14. This story seems like it might be one of a kind, but I'm here to tell you that he has a younger sibling who might soon be following in his teenage footsteps. Carson Huey Yu's purple cap and gown blends in with the rest of his graduating class at TCU. He's accepting a master's degree in physics, but he's doing it at just 17 years of age. Outside of just school and academia, I'm really just a normal 17-year-old kid. I like. Okay, so the name is Carson, C-A-R-S-O-N, Huey, H-U-E-Y-U-Y-O-U. Young African-American boy resembles someone not a lot of my listeners like. I like playing video games. I have a dog. I have my brother at home. So, you know, we have fun. Oh, yeah. Carson's brother, Cannon. I'm 14. I'm an electrical engineering major here. I get the, how old are you, sometimes. It's obvious that they are nerds. But their mother says being a nerd isn't a bad thing. She knew Carson had a bright future at an early age. By the time... He was two years old. He was reading chapter books. She homeschooled the child until he began eighth grade at age five. He started college at TCU at age 10. His brother, a few years later. They were shorter, and um, but they were almost equally smart as they are now, so I, I had to kind of try to assess if they were really ready to go to college. Physics and astronomy professor Magnus Ritby says being their mentor is a highlight of his career. He's emotional, thinking of their accomplishments, Mauricio Garcia Prieto. And what the future holds. There's no limit, not even the sky. So after today, I'll be going uh, back to TCU for my PhD. The brothers feel their path is what's best for them. The youngest wants to be an astronaut. I think a, a lot of kids have that dream for some reason, and 
Hopefully I'm the one to accomplish that. <laughs> but right now, the engineering major jokes about a project he's focused on back home. I have, a, I have all of my Lego Star Wars sets spread out there. I have too many, but... <laughs> have you seen the new Star Wars movie? Not yet, but I will soon. As for Carson, he... So I just wanted to say something. The mother reminds us of another mother we've seen. And the children from their structure indicate that they have African-American and Oriental descent. Uh, you can watch the video yourself. I'll tweet it out after the show so you can see it. But the clues here are, I'm going to play Star Wars Legos. Have you watched the movie? No, I haven't. How does a 11-year-old, 14-year-old, 17-year-old not have seen that movie? I'm just saying, how can you make spaceships, Legos, and not see the movie. On top of that, not to knock the mom, okay, at all, right? I'm homeschooling my daughter right now. I feel fully capable of doing that, but obviously I use um, an online system too. Uh, so this mom, who is not very articulate, does not seem, and, and you know, things aren't what they seem. I can, depending on who I talk to, I can be as dumb as you want me to be. You know, the words chosen, nerds, 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 very pedestrian. And a parent that raises a child that now is 17 getting a master's degree should not use that pedestrian word. Now, it could be used for dumbing down, but I urge you to watch the video and think. I mean, to homeschool your child, all you need is really a high school diploma, right? So that way you can use the... Um, appendages they give you and the information they give you so that you can guide your student, right? But she homeschooled him to the point that he was able to attend college after a few years. I had enrolled my eldest into college uh, and uh, she did one semester when she was, I think it was 10. Um, but then I pulled her out only because, you know, she was so into the books uh, that I kind of like thought, you know what, let her be a kid. Her ability to process mathematics will come later. I think it's a lot better for children that may be smarter to have that ability and not recluse or be... Um, it's almost like a self-destruct thing. I can't even explain it otherwise. Because when you're thinking 20 feet ahead of the other person, it's very hard to communicate sometimes. And those social skills come by interacting with people and children and finding, I would say, merit. I don't want to say merit. But looking forward to having fun. And having something simple. And these children, not so much. Listen. So really kind of digging into that rabbit hole and figuring out what's going on behind just equations or systems or whatever you're trying to solve. His professor believes he'll be working with world leaders. It makes sense to his mother. It's a beautiful thing to be a nerd because nerds will rule the world at some point. For now, the 17-year-old says he's just grateful for the support system leading him to graduation and beyond. I had, I had a village, you know, and sometimes that's, well, all the time that's what it takes. I had a village, 
So children are the target of everything, children. The most innocent souls brought to us that they are now trying us to convince are not important. That you can now decide if you want to allow it to live or not, depending on its genetic makeup. This insensitivity of dismissing souls that may not agree with whatever your higher loyalties plan is. Could you imagine if people found out that every single thing that they've genetically modified to us from coffee, water, food, medicine, is all for one goal, a long-term goal, that, like I said again, time is a matter of perception. So 3,000 years of humankind can be three seconds to another kind to successfully get what they want. I'm going to leave you with, the, with this. Those of you that love rabbit holes, think about the tablets and think about the ancient Egyptians, how they said that the gods came from above and inserted their DNA to them in order to work for them. Look that up. It's pretty interesting. Children are the most important thing our God has given us and um, among all and above all. He gave us his son to teach us what it really means to be human. I'll see you all tomorrow, same time, same place. Merry Christmas and God bless. A long way from the suits in D.C. But close enough now to see this mess. Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper. They grab a shovel, dig a hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to there.